Welcome back to another episode of Useless Degrees. I'm your host, Anthony Rastigue, and now that we're friends, you may call me Tony. Today, my guest is Jesse Beyer. Jesse Beyer earned a psychology degree from the University of Minnesota and currently is an award-nominated international speaker, number one best-selling author of How to Heal, and the founder of the Aspiring Author Incubator, through which he helps entrepreneurs and aspiring authors take their book from idea to published in less than five hours a week. She has been featured in over 100 media outlets and has spoken at various college campuses and corporations. Today, we're going to talk about the publishing business and how you can have your own story published. Now, let's get started. All right. Thank you so much for being here today, Jesse. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So let's get right into it, and we'll start from the beginning. So when you were studying psychology, did you ever see yourself going on to become a best-selling author and speaker? In short, yes and no. My college story is kind of interesting. So to give the full background as I answer your question, uh, my first year in college, I actually was at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in vet school. Um, and I found out pretty quickly that vet school wasn't a good fit for me. And so I was going to go into emergency medicine specifically as a paramedic. My parents were very supportive of me going to college, not quite so much of the paramedic route. Uh, so their agreement was you have to get an undergraduate degree first. That landed me at the University of Minnesota because I had a background in mental health. I was interested in psychology. I kind of figured, well, I have to do something, so I might as well do this. And while I was there, um, you know, life kind of unfolded. I realized that I was going to go into the mental health space, but it was never one of those things where it was like, okay, I'm going to go to college and study psychology so that I can become a mental health author and a speaker. It was more of things just kind of fell together that way. And that's what I ended up doing with the tools and education that I had in front of me. And that's amazing that it worked out and in your favor and everything. So upon graduation, why don't you tell us about your initial post-grad life and what that was like at the time? Definitely. So when I graduated, I kind of straight went into the speaking world. I had some experience with public speaking. I was never one to be scared of getting up in front of a crowd and sharing any sort of message, whether it was an announcement at an assembly or some sort of actual presentation. And so I took a course on speaking on college campuses because I figured that would be a good demographic for me. You know, I had just graduated. I was close to their age group. And I started speaking a little bit here and there. It was one of those things where I pitched about 2000 different places to speak. I pitched quite a lot of places, did a lot of work on that and ended up with like three gigs. So it was very early in my career where I didn't really have any background, didn't really have any clout um, and just kind of clawed my way up speaking at a couple different places. Uh, my first gig was at Missouri State University. So I got to travel, which was very fun. Uh, but really, it was just about being a very, very baby business owner and really hustling and hustling and trying to get to a point where I could sustain myself as an entrepreneur. And you mentioned that you took a course on speaking on a college campus. So tell me a little bit about that and how that differs from other speaking courses or speaking events. Why is it that college campuses specifically require more niche related topics when learning how to speak on those campuses? Definitely. Well, this course was the College Speaking Masterclass by Jacqueline Gregorio, and she is one of my favorite humans. I can't say enough good things about her. But what's interesting about the college market is it's a nice balance between ease of entry and you actually get paid pretty well. So in the speaking world, there's lots of different places that you can speak anywhere from, you know, rotary clubs and chambers of commerce up to major corporate events and conferences. And within that, obviously the pay goes up, the higher up that scale you get, but the difficulty of entry goes up as well. College was kind of a nice middle ground where you had to have some experience, a little bit of a good background to get in, but it wasn't like you needed 10 years of speaking or a corporate, you know, experience or anything like that to get in. 
On the other hand, for the most part, depending on the group that you pitched and things like that, they had pretty decent budgets. You can easily get somewhere between two and $5,000 gigs on college campuses, which you're not going to get at a chamber of commerce. Like I said, the chamber of commerce has the ease of entry, but it doesn't have the budget. Corporate events have the budget, but are very difficult to get into. And then college is kind of that middle ground where you can really build a foundation for yourself as a speaker. In which locations do you find more enjoyment when you speak? Is it more so those corporations or is it actually the college campuses? So I, when I started speaking, I thought I was going to get to corporate as fast as possible. I wanted the high paying gigs. I wanted to do that. But once I started speaking on college campuses and working with college students, I really fell in love with that demographic. Like I said, I'm still kind of in that age group. I can still relate enough on that level, but they are just so passionate and so excited and they care so much about each other and their communities. And so when I was able to see that and engage with that, I was like, I kind of just want to stay here. And so I've kept my focus on college campuses since then. And so on the topic of colleges and corporations, have you always preferred to work for yourself instead of working for a company? Always, 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 always. I've never fit into a box. I don't care how young I am. I was never someone to fit into a box. And the thought of getting up every day at six o'clock in the morning and going and sitting in an office from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. absolutely grinds my bones. I just can't do it. Uh, So I've always been interested in working for myself. I started kind of an entrepreneurship more in the fundraising charity side of things when I was 14 and started coordinating events. And it's always been kind of me chasing after my own projects and my own dreams since then. And it sounds like you definitely keep busy too. So walk me through what a typical day in the life of Jesse looks like. Definitely. So I have two pets, a dog and a cat. I call them my kids. So if you hear me reference my kids, they are animals, not children. That being said, Uh, We normally get up somewhere around eight o'clock ish. It kind of depends on when my dog wakes up and then it's getting them fed. Um, I am one of those people that checks my phone right in the morning. I don't know whether that's good or not. It's probably not, but it works for me. It just kind of helps me clear out my inbox of things that don't matter. So when I really sit down to work, I have a clean inbox of just things that I actually have to focus on. So I get up, feed the kids, feed myself, uh, check email, kind of clear out those notifications. And then we normally start the day actually with some sort of activity, whether it's a run, a bike, a hike, something where I'm moving, where I'm outdoors. Not only does that kind of set the tone for me in terms of how I want to spend my day, but it also tires my dog out. So she's not screaming at me while I'm trying to get work done. Normally we get back in the afternoons and then I work on and off from about 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. Usually, you know, we take breaks for walks and meals and things like that. But for me, the majority of my day kind of depends on the time of year. So when I'm in the semester, so fall semester, spring semester, I'm pretty busy with speaking gigs, with finalizing contracts, invoices, kind of the management side of speaking. And then in the summer, it's a lot about prepping for the next school year. So it's pitch list uh, building, it's reaching out to different schools, it's having those beginning conversations. I do a fair amount of different press work, whether that's responding to horror queries or podcast interviews like this. Um, and then as well, kind of brainstorming for the future. So I'm taking care of the students that I have in my aspiring author incubator. I'm working on marketing for that. Um, it really just kind of depends on the day. But in general, it's about maintaining the status that I have and working with the clients and students that I have while also planning and strategizing and growing for the future. And it definitely seems like it keeps you busy and it allows for a lot of opportunity to travel around with all the speaker series and everything too. I'm also curious when the pandemic hit and everything essentially went virtual, what was that like for you going from that transition of being in person in front of a crowd of thousands of college kids and essentially having them all on the screen right in front of you? You know, honestly, I'm a huge introvert. And so going virtual and not having to leave my house was not that big of a deal for me. Uh, It definitely was an adjustment in terms of how I presented because you don't have that energy like you were talking about. I can't do some of the interactive games that I did when I actually had an in-person presentation. But what it did allow me to do was really hit a lot more places. Normally, if I was speaking in person, I could maybe go to two schools a week. 
uh, that would be a lot. That's a lot of travel. I'd never be home. I'd be in and out of the house on airplanes and hotel rooms. It's not the lifestyle I want to lead. But when I'm speaking virtually, I can do a gig every single day. I can reach a school in Texas and then Pennsylvania and then Idaho and then wherever all in a week because I don't have that travel in between. So it was honestly a pretty seamless transition. I was proud of myself that I was able to kind of hop on the front end of that instead of, okay, we're just going to wait until presentations go back online or back in person, because then, you know, I'd still be waiting. Right. But it did, um, it did give me the opportunity to reach more schools, have a little bit more flexibility um, and, and work with schools and kind of help them understand, okay, how can we still bring value to your students in a virtual setting when they're already on zoom all day, when the last thing they want to do is listen to someone blab on for an hour. So it's really about that engagement piece as well, which is cool to kind of work through with the schools. And for those that are interested in touring campuses and doing all sorts of speaking events as well, who do you typically contact when you reach out to a university to book some some gig? Definitely. There's three main groups that I would recommend reaching out to and that I reach out to. Student government is one. The Panhellenic Association, if there is one, which is the sorority kind of management group. And then the Interfraternity Council, which is obviously the fraternity management group on campuses as well. I recommend reaching out to those three groups as opposed to individual sororities or individual clubs and things like that. Just because the budget is higher, you're going to get more people in. There's more of resources behind it. So those are the three groups that I would recommend reaching out to on a college campus. Specifically, you want to reach out to either the president of that group or organization or the director of programming. You are going to be doing most of your course coordination with a fellow student. Um, they're going to be one of the members of the group, and then they kind of have to ask their advisor for approval for budgets and contracts and things like that. But it is that student you're going to be having the direct communication with. And so I was actually a mem- I was actually the vice president of the Interfraternity Council, too, and we did end up b- booking a couple of speakers and everything. It was all for free, though, and it was specifically for the Greek community, too. So how do you cross that threshold into allowing for it to be a paid gig and to a wider audience? Yeah, when you're starting out, it's definitely difficult because you don't have any sort of background or speaking resume underneath you. So it's hard to come in and say, yes, I'm requesting $5,000 when I have no experience at all. So in the beginning, you are going to be accepting some free gigs. You're going to be speaking for a wide variety of fees. I think the first semester that I spoke, my lowest paying gig was $150 and my highest was $4,000. So it totally ranged that first semester. And from there, you can kind of start being a little bit pickier. The next phase of kind of pricing that I went into was being a little bit stricter, but having some negotiation room. So for example, if I would have come to you and said, okay, my fee is $3,000 and you say, okay, we only have 2000. I could then come back and say, okay, well, I'm happy to do it for a lower rate if you can give me X, Y, and Z. So a testimonial referral photo, something like that. So you're having a little bit of a negotiation in there. And now I'm at the point where my rates are my rates. And if you can't afford my rates, then we're not a good fit for each other. That being said, I do have a couple different tiers, so I'm not pricing everyone out, but I'm also not spending a lot of time negotiating and doing a bunch of $300 gigs and things like that anymore. And so let's get into your best-selling book, How to Heal. So this book explores various ways to heal from trauma using natural therapies. So what was the process behind your research and what was that like when discovering and compiling these therapies? Mm -hmm. So I'm one of those people that has always loved learning. I love learning and I generally hate school because it is so rigid and structured and I just want to learn and I want to amass knowledge and not have to check all these different boxes. So the process of researching the book was so much fun for me. I got to read so many different published studies on the different types of therapies I discussed, looked at, you know, okay, is this actually something that was covered successfully in this study? Do we have enough data on this to make it valid? So I really got to dive into the research. And then I also got to interview so many amazing therapists 
therapists in these different fields and hear their stories, their personal experience, as well as their expertise. And when I was writing it, it was kind of this conglomeration of my own experience, what I had been through, what I had wish I'd done differently, what I learned from those therapists, and then what I learned from research as well. So one thing that I pride myself on with my book is that it's for the masses. It's not a psychology textbook. It's not for other psychological professionals. It is for people. And so it was very fun to kind of take this high level knowledge, this research, this expert discussion and translate it into something that I could sit down with anyone and they could understand what I was talking about. Now, assuming this was a passion project for quite some time, what were some resources that helped kickstart this project altogether? So it actually started as my capstone project for my undergraduate degree. Um, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do in the psychology field, but I was passionate about this, like you were saying. And so I went to my advisor and was like, hey, so I know it's supposed to be a lit review, that that's what this capstone project is supposed to be. But can I write a book instead? It'll be about 100 times as long and way more in depth and things like that. And I went to a pretty traditional university. They didn't like things outside of the box at all. And so my lit or my advisor for that told me, no, you have to write a lit review for this class. So I'm like, okay. And like any self-respecting budding entrepreneur, I spent the entire semester writing my book and then spent the last three hours before the lit review was due writing the lit review. So that's kind of how it all started. And for me, resources, I guess, in terms of the research process, it was the library database at my university. I got access to a lot of studies that way. And then honestly, just Google, reaching out to different therapists, Googling different blog articles, journal articles, and things like that. And then with the publication process, that was such a journey down the Google rabbit hole of looking up every little thing from how do I format my uh, page numbers in my book to how do I publish? How do I do this? How do I do that? So it was just a ton of different blog articles, podcast interviews, help sections of different websites and things like that. It was not incredibly streamlined like I teach my students how to do today. And that's such a wild story too. how it starts off as essentially a capstone project and then it eventually works out in your favor in the end. And I'd imagine that there's a lot of people out there with a similar story that they have yet to tell. They just haven't quite gotten to that yet. So from your perspective, what do you recommend they do to feel all the more inspired to get that story told? Refuse to be put into a box. There's going to be so many different institutions in your life, whether it's the university that you're currently at or recently graduated from, whether it's your place of employment, your family, whatever that is, there's already a box there. And people have put you in it and they've said, this is your role. This is what you can and cannot do. And I would just tell you to refuse to accept that. Yes, you might have to kind of play along and check the boxes in order to fulfill whatever obligation you have or get the passing grade for the class that you're in. But that doesn't mean that you can't use the knowledge and the time from that class or job as well as the other time you have in your life to really follow what lights your soul on fire. I think there's too many people that when they are told this is your box, this is what you can and can't do, they sit there and they say, oh, that's a bummer, but okay, I guess I got to do it. Yes, you might have to do it, but that doesn't mean you can't also do something else and can't also pursue life in the way that you want to be pursued. Gotcha. And so along this journey, did you ever experience writer's block at any point? Honestly, I, (laughs) this is such a hard question for me to answer because I say no. And people are like, how have you never experienced writer's block? I honestly never did. I was one of those kids that was writing from as soon as I knew what a pencil was. And when I was in high school, I was that kid that instead of asking for the minimum page requirement, I was asking for the maximum page requirement. So I've kind of always had stories and words within me, and I've never really run into a situation where it's like, oh God, I don't know what else to say. 
Um, there's definitely been times where I don't know how to fit things together. Like, you know, for certain chapters of my book, it's like, okay, I know I want to include all of this information. How am I going to put it together? What order should I put it in? So I guess I had a bit of writer's block there, but I've really never run into that issue of, I don't know what else to say. That's fascinating. And with that being said, is there any advice you can give to people that experience writer's block? Take a break. Honestly, just stop. The worst thing you can do is try to force yourself to write because even if you get something on paper that way, it's not going to be very good. It's not going to be high quality. It's not going to be what you really want to say. So get outside, move your body, watch some TV, read a book, eat some food. I don't care. Just stop working and then come back to it when you've had a time to kind of reset, refresh and approach it with a new perspective. And so when it comes to the marketing aspect of publishing a book, what should a writer do to continue getting their name out there and their voice heard aside from social media posts? Mm -hmm. Well, you kind of just said it, you have to keep doing it. I think one thing that a lot of authors have a misconception about is, okay, I publish my book, maybe it hits a bestsellers list, and then I'm good. You know, it's the, if I build it, they will come sort of mentality. And that's not true. It's something you have to actively keep doing every single day, every week, every month, every quarter in your business moving forward. Now I say business because the minute you publish a book, you are a business owner. That may be your only product that you ever produced in your life, but you are a business owner and you have to treat the marketing of that product of your book, like any other entrepreneur would. So for me, just to give a couple examples, I am continually selling my book through bulk book buys for my speaking gigs. So not only do I offer a presentation, but I offer copies of my book as well. I market through social media. Like you said, I do a lot of different podcasts and PR things just to get my name out of new places, drive people to my book, to my website, um, you know, Instagram lives with other people, some social media marketing. That's more for my course than my book. But in general, I'm kind of, I have my fingers in a lot of different pies. I have my name getting out there in a lot of different ways because it is something that you have to continue to do every single single day that you are an author. And that's wild going from a psychology major to ultimately a business owner too. So when it comes to acquiring the knowledge and resources on how to run that business, who or what did you turn to in order to make yourself fully knowledgeable of such? Whenever I want to learn something, my first stop is always Google. And then it's Google podcasts. Secondly, so it's how do I do this? How do I publish a book? How do I market a book? How do I get a speaking gig? How do I do that? And then I start listening to some podcast interviews on it. And all of those different things, all of those blog posts that I read, the podcast interviews that I listened to, they were so incredibly helpful. And I would highly recommend that anyone who wants to learn anything, whether it's business related or not, do those things and start with those avenues. But one of my favorite sayings is that the transformation is in the transaction. So when you're able to actually put down money, hire a coach, take a course, work with someone, get someone's eyes on your work and your plan for your business, that's going to take it to the next level. Not only are you more invested in that knowledge because you paid for it, but you're getting a higher level of knowledge and a more deep level of a deeper level of knowledge as well. Um, as far as specifics, um, I love Jenna Kutcher's podcast, Amy Porterfield's podcast, James Wedmore's podcast. Those are all fantastic. Jacqueline, like I said, was a huge help for me when I started my speaking business. Um, I'm working with Haley Burkhead for business marketing in general right now. So those are just a few names you can check out. Uh, but in general, get the free stuff, get the baseline, get your strategy, and then dive a bit deeper, hire someone, take a course, like I said, to get that next level of instruction. And so when it comes to the public speaking aspect, let's say someone is struggling with acquiring those skills. So what do you think they can do to overcome that fear of public speaking? 
The biggest tip I would give is you kind of just got to do it and you got to recognize that it's going to suck in the beginning. My first speech, I'm going to be totally honest about this. My first speech was my eighth grade valedictorian graduation speech. And I was so nervous that I got my friend to co-speech it with me. And we alternated lines of the script that I had written. And it was so bad. It was so bad. I never want anyone to see that video of that presentation in my life, but that's how I started. And even if I look back at my first paid presentation at Missouri State, I'm like, oh my God, that was so bad. They paid me $4,000 for that. That's ridiculous. But you have to just start speaking, whether that is getting a group of friends and family together, whether it's getting in front of your chamber of commerce, that's a very easy gig to book. Um, Get in front of these places, go to your library, do a presentation at your library, but just get in front of someone and talk. Uh, The more you do that, the better it's going to become. And the more you do that, you start to learn what content resonates with people. So for example, if there's certain parts of your speech that people always have questions about, you may go back and say, okay, you know, I've got to add some more depth here. I've got to answer some more questions here. If people laugh at a certain point in every presentation, then you know that you want to keep that in. You can kind of read the audience and, and build your presentation from there. But it's one of those things where the best way to start is to start. And you just kind of got to do it recognize that it's going to get better the more you do it and you're going to get more comfortable with it the more you do it as well. Now the timeline throughout all the speeches that you would give was there at any point where you would think to yourself I think I need to adjust this entire speech or I need to talk and go down a whole different route that I wasn't talking about during these other speeches. Was there any sort of epiphany that where you realized hmm maybe I should tell this story from this angle during the next speech? So it wasn't as much that as much as finding which of my presentation topics was the best. So when I started, I had a couple different presentation topics I would talk on, maybe four or five. And now I have one, maybe two, if you're really special and I want to give you a certain presentation. But normally I have one. You get one presentation. This is what it is. And I'm really, really good at it. So in the beginning, when I was playing around with these different presentation topics, I would see not only which ones got booked more, so which ones people that that were actually paying me were interested in, but also which ones resonated with the audience. So for example, one of my presentations was about finding your why and finding your motivation. And it was good for like 15 minutes. And then people were like, okay, I get the picture. Let's move on. And I didn't really know what to do with the rest of the 45 minutes that I was on stage. So you kind of have those where you're like, oh, this is going to be a great presentation. I'm going to talk about all these different things and people are going to love it. And then you get up there and you get a certain amount of time in and you're like, oh, people don't love this. This is not going very well. And then you can either kind of scrap that presentation topic or go back, refine, add more information and kind of do it again. But to answer your question in very short form. Yes, I have had that. And it's been a lot about um, kind of topic evolution for me, as opposed to I have to tweak this specific little thing in a presentation. And that's got to be so frustrating afterward, where you step off the stage and realize, ah, I, I forgot to bring up this point And I forgot to talk about X, Y, and Z. But it's great that you have further plans to speak at other universities. So you can there end up correcting yourself and essentially spicing up the speech as a whole, it seems. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because now with that signature presentation, especially when it's virtual, when I don't have to worry about body language and energy of the room as much, I can be talking and giving my presentation. And in my head, I'm overthinking about my grocery list or what I have to do with my dog later that day. I'm kind of on autopilot at this point with that presentation, especially in a virtual setting, because I know what hits. I know how to tell the stories. I know where to get the laughs, how to lower my voice, raise my voice to, you know, convey the tone and the energy that I'm trying to convey at a certain point. And listening back to my presentations, it's kind of funny because, you know, I'm starting in the beginning and I'm happy and I'm talking. And then we get to a certain point where I'm telling a story about, um, being in a dumpster actually. And it 
you know, my voice, it goes down and it's quieter and it slows down and it really just changes the whole energy of it. And so it's kind of fun to think back to the start of my speaking career to where I am now and be like, wow, I never could have done that when I started. So trust yourself. You will get better. I promise. Have you ever had a speech where you would step up on stage and you knew in your system, you did not have the energy to speak and you kind of just had to roll with the punches? 100%, especially in this last year where I was doing a presentation every single day, some weeks I'd have five or six presentations in a week and I'd hit the fourth or fifth one. And I'd be like, Oh my God, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to tell the same stories over and over and over. I'm so tired. I want to go to bed and eat some chocolate and be done for the day. And yeah, it happens. I just to be totally honest. And then for me, at least when I sit down and I give my opening line and kind of get the audience talking a little bit, then it's like, okay, okay, I can do this. We got some good energy in the room. You know, I can pull through with this. The other thing that's been difficult is really small virtual presentations. So when you're giving a virtual presentation, the best mode of interaction that you have is the chat. And it's really, really fun when you have, you know, 100, 200, 300 people in this Zoom room and the chat is just flying. You can't even keep up with it. When there's three people and you're trying to do engagement things with the audience in this Zoom chat and it's like one message and then no one replies. And then one, maybe again later, it's like, oh, it feels like you're kind of pulling teeth out of of the audience. So from a virtual presentation perspective, I'd say that's almost more difficult than the lack of desire to do it some days in the beginning. And how do you combat that? Like if you're speaking to a crowd that just isn't biting and isn't engaging as much, what is your essential reaction and how do you help pick it up? Yeah. So for me, I kind of try to pick it up and then let it go if it doesn't, because the last thing I want to do is be sitting there in dead silence, waiting for someone to respond or really bugging people to respond. I talk about mental health, right? That's what I present about. And it's a very personal topic. Some people are not comfortable discussing that in a public setting where everyone can read their name and read their chat. And so what I'll kind of do in the beginning, if my very first question doesn't get any interaction, I'll make some joke about like, oh, you know, hey guys, I'm the professor that's going to wait you out until you respond in the chat. So come on, get your fingers going or something like that. Try to pull them along. And then if it doesn't happen, I'll just kind of fill in that time where I would be reading out their answers with answers other students and other presentations have given. So for example, one of the things that I discuss in my presentation is kind of um, things you you shouldn't say to someone who's struggling. And I have them think about how they would feel if they were on the receiving end of that and let me know that in the chat. So one of the sentences that we discuss is, I know what you're going through. And people are often like, oh, I would feel invalidated. I would feel unheard. I feel like trying to make it all about them. And so if I don't have any engagement, if I don't have any interaction in the chat, when I'm posing that question to the attendees, I'll just kind of start talking and say what I just said. Like, oh, you know, other students, they say X, Y, and Z to kind of fill that time. And again, after a couple, I'll just, I'll just let it go a little bit because I don't want to keep bugging them to be engaged if they really don't want to. And aside from that, what are some of your other big struggles that you've experienced in the past when publishing your book? Yeah, with publishing in general, I think a lot of it was internal. I tried to go to the traditional publishing route in the beginning, and I was like, I have this awesome book. It's going to change people's lives. I'm a good writer. I was really, really confident. And then at about 100 query letters that I sent out to agents with absolutely no one being interested, I was like, ooh okay, maybe I don't, maybe I don't have this. And what a lot of people were telling me was, oh, your platform isn't big enough. You don't have enough people that are following you. So I was like, well, okay, you know, I guess I'll just put this on the shelf for a couple of years and maybe try it again later when I have a bigger audience. And that was kind of a moment where I had to sit down with myself and say, no, you were still right. This story can still change people's lives. You just have to find another way to do it. There were definitely a lot of times where something like that happened, where the route that I wanted to go down, it wasn't working for whatever reason. And so that was an opportunity for me to say, okay, 
you have this goal of changing these people's lives. How do we pivot? How do we do this in a different way? And the publishing platform is kind of just one example of that throughout the process. It's very inspiring. And do you think that universities specifically could do something to help prepare young writers instead of just having their critiquing writing center? Yeah, I think so. I think it's interesting because whenever you write something, you have to understand what the purpose is. And so that critiquing writing center is probably doing a very good job of preparing students to write published studies or write newspaper articles or something that's more of a traditional form of writing. But when you're writing for creativity, when you're writing to tell a story, whether that's fiction or nonfiction or portray some sort of um, story or knowledge or something to the people that are reading it, that can happen in so many different ways. And there isn't always a right way to do it. So I guess what I would encourage either universities to do or the people that are on the receiving end of this criticism is take the spelling, grammar, formatting, punctuation type of things. Because if you don't have those down, I'm not going to read your stuff and I'm going to be very annoyed by you. But don't take the style advice, the word choice advice, the tone advice to heart as much. Because a lot of university writing centers, they have one way of doing it. This is the tone. These are the words you can use. This is not a word you should use. But as a writer, as an author, as a creative, there's no wrong words. There is no wrong way to do it. And so again, take that kind of hard grammar spelling advice to heart and fix that stuff, but keep your creativity and don't let that get tampered out by some of these writing centers on campuses. Right on. And what are your plans and goals for the future? Definitely. So I have a very robust five-year plan that I will spare you the details of, but in general, um, I am excited to hopefully hit 4,000 students in my writing program by the end of this year, uh, which I'm very, very excited about. That's 4,000 books. I have a hand in getting out into the world. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I do have my fall speaking tour coming up at the September, October, November of this year. Um, and then I do have another book in the works for a couple of years out. So we'll see what happens with that. But I'm excited to put that into the world as well. That's amazing to hear. And best of luck to you in the future with all that too. And thanks again so much for being on the show. And my final bonus question to you is a question that I ask all of my guests. But what do you personally think is the most useless college degree? Oh, gosh. So I have, <laughs> I have two answers. I don't know which is my real answer, but the first one that came into my head was philosophy because I don't really think there's much you can do in terms of getting a career with a degree in philosophy, but philosophy enables you to think in so many different ways and have so many different perspectives and understandings about the world, which I think is one of the most important things you can have as a human being. And then my second answer was psychology because there's not a lot you can do with an actual bachelor's degree in psychology without going to grad school. So I guess I'm torn between the degree that I got and philosophy. Definitely, definitely. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show today. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Absolutely. So the best place to connect with me is on Instagram. I am at Jesse Byer International. Um, and then if you are interested in writing a book, there is a free training at the link in my bio that will show you exactly how to do that. And if you want to buy my book, you can do that on Amazon. Well, thank you so much again, Jesse. Best of luck to you in the future. Thank you for having me. My guest today was Jesse Byer. And if you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and subscribe and share with your friends and family. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at useless.degrees and go like our Facebook page, Useless Degrees Podcast. Thanks again so much for listening, and I look forward to entertaining you all on the next episode.